0: If you were the Messiah, the expected one, God born as a man, how would you prove it? We're used to thinking that Jesus proved he was the Messiah by the miracles. But what we notice today is that Jesus presents himself as the Messiah by preaching the word of God. He uses the scripture because he is the one who originally spoke those words. And those words testify to him. And Jesus expects his audience to listen and hear and obey him because he is God. And he's speaking the word of God with authority and with power. So we're picking it up here in Luke chapter 4, reading from verse 14. And it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what we're noticing here is that Jesus is preaching the gospel in the power of the Spirit. That's what Luke emphasizes. That Jesus returns from his time of being tempted and tested in the wilderness, in the power of the Spirit. During these 40 days, the devil has been trying to swerve Jesus from his obedience to the Father, his complete yieldedness to the Lord. Whether he lives or dies, he is going to Submit to him, obey him. And the devil's been trying to swerve him. Here, go off to the right, go to the left. Do this, do that. And Jesus has really just yielded himself to the Father. And because Jesus is completely yielded to the Father, the Spirit is upon him. In power. That is, the Spirit as Lord can do anything he wants to through Jesus. Jesus is not going to say, Well, what are we doing that for? No. That's one thing that Jesus never says to the Holy Spirit. And because he always says yes, and he's submitted to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is able to work through him with power. And that brings up an interesting point. That it's possible to quench the Spirit. It's possible to say no to the Holy Spirit. It's possible to grieve the Spirit. Because he's God, and he knows best. And that's why we don't walk in the power of the Spirit, is because we say no. So if you want to walk in the power of the Spirit, say yes, no matter what happens, because he knows best. So... Here's Luke, kind of skipping over about a year of Jesus' life after he was baptized by John. It's preserved for us, partly, in the Gospel of John, from chapters 2 through 4, almost about a year. And this ministry of Jesus here, going around Galilee, happens after John the Baptist was arrested by Herod Antipas and put into prison. So here's Jesus going around the region of Galilee, and he's teaching in synagogues. And the reason for it is that the gospel is for the Jews first. First and foremost, it is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. Jesus is for the Jews. And it says here he's praised by all because he's teaching in the power of the Spirit. Now, You gotta remember, nobody ever spoke the way Jesus spoke. We read here about the gracious words that fell from his lips. I have a translation that actually says that. Can you imagine that? The gracious words that fell from his lips. The writer is trying to find a way to convey What it was like to hear Jesus. When Jesus taught, when he spoke, it was simple. It was understandable. You could follow him. He never said anything trivial. He never cracked jokes. He never did weird things that made you think, what is he on about? What, What does he mean here? Everybody could understand him completely. He did not draw attention to himself. He wasn't trying to be like a speaker, and you know, this guy's weird, he does this kind of a thing, and he draws attention to himself. Funny enough, everything he says, everything he does, people are brought face-to-face with God. And he spoke with authority. What you would hear a teacher in these times say is refer to somebody else's authority. Rabbi Hillel says this, but Rabbi Shammai says this. And it would be like citing the authorities. Nowadays, you would hear what Charles Spurgeon said, what F.B. Meyer said. And so forth. But you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has an entire section where he says, you've heard it said that. And then he follows it with, but I say to you. And you remember the effect at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that the people were astounded because he spoke to them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He laid it down. This is what it means. And he expected his listeners to understand him. He expected his listeners to obey him. Now, Luke writes about the time when Jesus actually came to his hometown, also a part of this region of Galilee. And you notice, in verse 16, it says, his custom was to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. Without exception. You know, he didn't start going to synagogue when he began his ministry. But that is his custom ever since he was old enough to make a choice. And you remember... There he is in Jerusalem for three days while his parents racked their brains trying to think of where could he be. And they could have found him on day one in the first 15 minutes because he was right there at the temple. That's who he was when he was 12 years old. So that's who he is to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath, because he's committed to worship. He's committed to be with the people of God. That's where you are if you're godly. So, a typical Sabbath service opened with prayer and the confession of faith was, which is called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There would be more prayer. There would be set readings from the law and the prophets, and you follow the schedule. There would be some kind of an exhortation or a sermon, or encouragement from either one of the men of the congregation, or a rabbi, or a priest who might be visiting. And then the meeting would close with a benediction, prayer. So Jesus is in the part of the service where the prophets are read, and someone, the attendant, Hands him the scroll of Isaiah. Today, the reading is coming from the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus rolls the scroll open until he finds the place that we know as chapter 61. Those chapters and verses were actually put in around the time of the Renaissance. So they're not original. They're just aids and helps. So Jesus wouldn't go, okay, 48, 49, we've got to keep going here, until he gets to chapter 61. He knows the spot. And so he rolls right to it, and he reads it. Then he rolls it up, hands it to the attendant, and sits down. And what that means is he is the teacher he's going to teach. In those days, the teacher sits down and everybody stands. But we don't do that here, do we? Mm -mm. But when he sits, that means class is in session and he's teaching. And then he has a fabulous introduction to his message. You know, when you have an introduction, when you, when you teach the Bible, you want to start with something that lets people know this is worth your investment to listen. You don't want to say something to somebody that says, you know what, you don't have to really stay awake on this. You can just ride out. You don't need to pay attention. What's for lunch? So really, when you're speaking, you want to let people know that what you have to say is of the highest importance, and you need to open your eyes, and you need to open your ears, and you need to pay attention. This is not time waster. This is life and death. This is what life is about right here. And Jesus starts out with the most amazing, gripping introduction. Today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before, The God who spoke through Isaiah is speaking right now. Is that not gripping? This scripture is in the first person. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And Jesus is saying, That person who spoke that is me. I am the Lord. I am the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me when I speak. He is speaking through me. He anointed me. To preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this is by the Spirit of the Lord the Lord is bringing forth his salvation. And this is the acceptable time. What he's referring to is what's called the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years. This was like a Sabbath of Sabbaths. There was supposed to be a year of release every seven years, but when you get to seven sevens, Year 50 is released to the captives. Everybody's land goes back to them if you sold it, if you lost your uh, inheritance. It all comes back to you. And it is freedom. And everybody receives what's theirs. It's like a holy reset to the land of Israel. Israel. It's a blessing. Now, what that is a shadow of, the Messiah brings in the permanent, the lasting. And it's tremendous. And what he's saying is, this is no longer future. This is no longer, oh, it'd be great if it was here. It's right now. Now, it takes someone with power and authority to make it happen because of sin. Sin ruins everything. Sin takes away everything. So it has to be accomplished with power and authority to remove sin, to remove everything that separates a person from God. And so what we notice here is that the gospel is not just a doctrine with statements and propositions that get put out and you vote for it. One A, one B, okay, got my propositions here. The gospel is a person who makes it happen with power and authority. So, in this electric moment how does it go over that's something every preacher asks how's it going am i getting anywhere well let's let's see what happens here in verse 22 it says so all bore gracious or all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth and they said Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Well, it starts off pretty good. All bore witness to him. That is, wow, he's really something. Because they'd been hearing things. that He even talks about it. That Jesus is preaching in the synagogues, and it's like, wow, I heard him. I'm floored. I've never heard anything like this in my life. And of course, you know, it percolates. The news goes around. People in Nazareth hear that. I go, really? Are we talking about the same guy? I mean, I know who that is, but I mean, really? And then he shows up. And everybody's riveted. And they're listening. They go, wow. That's, that's amazing. amazing. Him. So they're marveling at what they're hearing. And again, Think about this. Super simple. You don't have any problem following him. And no jokes, and no weirdness, no time-wasting. Jesus is speaking so clearly and powerfully with authority, and everybody is floored. But then they understand him, all too well. They understand. He's saying he's God? And they push back. And see, they start saying, is this not Joseph's son? And that's a funny way to put it, isn't it? It's a form of a question That demands the answer, yes, that's who he is. And they're sitting there going, this is Joseph's son. This is Jesus. We all know Jesus. We know who he is. And what they're saying is, he's not God. Joseph's son is making himself out to be the Messiah. Who does he think he is? And more than that, they're saying, who are you to tell us that we're poor, brokenhearted, captives, blind, oppressed? You're telling us that's what we are? Who do you think you are? So they're saying, no, we're not, and they're offended, and they're angry. And the crazy thing is, Jesus knows what they're thinking. You see this a lot in the Gospel of John, that he's teaching in the temple. And then there are pockets of people listening to him that are muttering. They're saying, Wait a minute. What what is he saying? He's saying, I don't know. And Jesus begins to address what they're muttering as he's teaching in the temple because he knows what they're thinking. And he's doing that right here. Because he says, you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And what this means is prove it. Let's see ya. Do something. And, you know, physician, heal yourself. Let's see it happen on you. Show us. So they're saying do something like what you did in Capernaum, a place he's obviously been to on when he goes around the synagogues in Galilee. And they heard about Jesus performing miracles. So they say, okay, you're the Messiah. Why don't you do something? We're watching. Prove it. And this would be the perfect opening for Jesus to do a miracle if he was like these people that say Jesus needed miracles in order to prove who he was. I've read books like this. People who emphasize miracles and signs and wonders because they say, that's what you got to have. This was the big thing with John Wimber, power evangelism. When we go out on the street and when we pray for people and when they're healed, they're going to receive Jesus because it's undeniable And that was their big thing. And you see it come up. It's come up a couple of decades later now. Maybe nobody here knows who John Wimber is. But then there's other groups that come out and say, this is how you do it. You're supposed to go out there with power. And then people will believe. This would be the perfect opportunity, wouldn't it? All right? Prove it. And Jesus doesn't do it. He refuses to do it. Now, I think this is significant because Jesus is showing us, what do you do? And here he is speaking to them the word of God with power and authority. And they are rejecting the word of God and saying, absolutely not. We're listening, but we're not going to obey. You know, Jesus is going to tell a parable right here in this gospel later on about the rich man and the poor man. And the poor man dies, is carried to Abraham's bosom for comfort. The rich man dies and goes into the place of torments. And that rich man says, Send Lazarus back to tell my brothers, lest they come to this place. And Abraham goes, nope. They got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to Moses. And the rich man says, no, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll believe. And Abraham says, you know what? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even if somebody rises from the dead. Because there's an attitude in the heart. You know what the attitude is? Testing God. Okay. Want to do something God like? Okay. You know, people have this kind of curiosity no intention of ever giving in to God. But I wouldn't mind seeing some razzle dazzle, I wouldn't mind seeing some action. What do you got? I'm not going to believe, forget that. See, it, it's not something that actually encourages trust and submission to God, it encourages idle curiosity. It doesn't change anyone's mind because they're not listening to the Word of God. The Gospel is the Word of God, and it is the power of God to salvation. God does not say, I will do miracles and then you'll believe. Jesus fed 5,000 people with five little bread rolls and some really tiny fish, and they came looking for him, and he says, you know what? You're looking for me, not because you want to follow me, but because you ate and were filled. See? People will follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. How about the fact that he is God, and you you must obey God? Then you don't need a miracle. What you need to do is hear and obey. So Jesus even talks about when God refused to do miracles for Israel, when God blessed Gentiles and not his own people. And you remember the situation with Elijah the prophet. He arises and says, by the word of the Lord, no rain is going to fall in Israel until I give the word. And this is part of the law of God, that if God's people disobey him, he will send famine on the land. And this is that, because they were following Baal, worshiping other gods, and God spoke through Elijah and said, because you're not listening to me, you're not obeying me, I'm going to withhold the rain. And he did that for three and a half years. And as Jesus says, he sent Elijah to this Gentile lady living in Zarephath, a widow. And when he gets to this widow, he says, make me some bread. And she says, well, you know, there's a famine on. I only got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And when I use that up, we're going to die. And he says, make me one first, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, That flour, that oil, will not fail until the famine is over. So she makes him a little piece of bread with that flour and oil. And then she goes back to the flour and the oil, and there's still some left. And that goes on for three and a half years. But you know, she believed him, and she made him the bread first. And God blessed. And it's the same thing with this Naaman the Syrian in the time of Elisha. That is, Naaman comes to Elisha and says, Heal me, and Elisha does not even come out of his house. Sends his servant. To say, go dip seven times in the Jordan and your flesh is going to be restored to you. And Naaman is all angry. He says, I thought he'd come out and kind of wave his hands and Ugh, kind of voice. And then I'm going to be clean. I'm not going to wash in the stupid Jordan. I could do that back home in Syria. But his servant says, you know, if he had asked you to do some great thing, you'd have done it, right? Well, why don't you just do what he says? So his servant convinces Naaman to hear it and obey it. And he says, This is stupid. And he dips himself seven times. And the seventh time he comes out, his flesh is restored. Both times. It's because somebody is listening and obeying that God blesses. But God does not have to bless disobedience. And Jesus is not blessing disobedience right now in the synagogue in Nazareth. He's saying, if you guys are not open to the word of God, no miracles. And they're so angry, they're going to throw him off the cliff. How do you like that? You know, in John chapter 8, the Jews answer to Jesus and say, Abraham is our father. And he says, wow, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. Here are these people who say, we're not poor, blind, and naked, and oppressed, and all this stuff, and you're not the Messiah. And then they try to kill him. And what they show is that they're slaves of sin. And you know, if you have a problem with Jesus, you're wrong. The end. So then Jesus leaves Nazareth and goes to Capernaum, where he was before. Verse 31. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone! What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and didn't hurt him. Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is! For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So, Jesus comes to some other place, Capernaum. He's been there before, and he preaches the gospel about himself. And he's opposed by a demon. And it says the people in the synagogue are literally knocked out by the teaching because this teaching has authority. And there's this guy in the synagogue possessed by an unclean spirit. And this demon knows who Jesus is and says really awful things about him. And the first thing he does is he screams out. Now, this isn't nice, it isn't pretty, it's ugly. <laughs> That's kind of creepy. And he says, let us alone. You know, you have no business. I know who you are, the son of God. You know, this is creepy stuff. And trying to make Jesus out like he's the creepy guy, you know, avoid him. And... Jesus doesn't need this kind of acknowledgement. Just because somebody says Jesus doesn't mean he's on Jesus' side. And he especially doesn't need acknowledgement from the devil. So he rebukes this demon and casts him out. And this is significant because only God can rebuke people or demons. This is something that belongs to God. You know that um, in Jude, it says, the Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. It doesn't even say, I rebuke you. Only the Lord can rebuke. And you notice Jesus He rebukes demons, he rebukes fevers, he even rebukes the wind and the waves, and they obey him. And Jesus does this specifically because he's God. And the people, of course, are amazed, and they're trying to figure out, what is this? They're trying to figure out, who is this guy? They haven't really rejected him yet, but they're still talking to each other. What do you think? I have no idea. I've never seen anything like this in my life. What's going on? Who is this guy? So there we have to leave it. And see, Jesus said he came for the poor. That means the poor in spirit the poor that don't have what it takes to get into heaven. That is, when you come to heaven and Jesus says, why should I let you in to my nice clean heaven? And you go, I don't know. That's a bad answer. So you need to be acceptable to God. Are you acceptable to God just as you are? Are you pleasing to him? Jesus said he came for captives of sin. And do you know what it is to be a prisoner of sin? That is, to have the desire to do what's right? And you don't do that. But instead, you do the very thing you don't want to do. You know what it's like to be a prisoner of sin. Absolutely unable to get out. He came for the blind to give them sight of Him. And you know, that's what saves you, to look at Jesus on the cross and to know that He is the sacrifice for your sins. His blood pays for your sins against God. He came for the oppressed The downtrodden, the broken, the crushed, the bruised, that is what your sin does to you. It destroys you. And he says, now is the time to be accepted by God. This is when you can be free from everything that destroys and actually be accepted by God. And he says, it's now. And your whole future hangs on how you hear and obey Jesus. Now, these people in Nazareth, they didn't listen to him. They didn't obey him. They tried to kill him. And you're not going to get anywhere in life by rejecting Jesus. And the demon knew that Jesus was from Nazareth. He knew that he was the Son of God. But even if you know the exact truth, it doesn't save you, because demons didn't obey Jesus. And the only reason the demon left was because Jesus made him go with power. And these guys in Capernaum are putting their heads together, trying to figure out, what does this all mean? But they're not especially listening to Jesus either. Because later on, Jesus is going to rebuke the cities in which he did his greatest miracles, and they didn't repent. They're impressed by Jesus' show of authority, and yet at the same time, that doesn't save anybody. Believing in a miracle does not make you right with God. So, ultimately, you have to listen to Jesus and then do what he says. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, why why do I not believe Jesus? Why Why do I not obey him? If there's anybody here this morning and you haven't committed your life to Jesus, then you have to ask, why? Why don't I do that? And probably it's fear. Like, what's he going to do to me? What would he do to me if he had me? I don't know what else. I'm trying to think of, you know, what was my big problem? Why did I hope that he wasn't going to get a hold of my life, and he did anyway? But what is the big problem? And I think a lot of times it's... We don't know him. But what you could do is sit down with a Bible and listen to him. Listen to what he says about himself. And ask yourself, do I believe him? Because see, if you listen and you obey, you're going to receive him. You're going to be able to submit to him. You can't submit to somebody you don't trust. And you don't trust them because you don't know them. So what is your big problem? What is the big problem with submitting to Jesus? It's the most reasonable thing you can do. What I would suggest is get a Bible, read in the Gospels, and say, What is my big problem, Lord? do that. Listen to him and obey him. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can hear the words of Jesus. And they're not just his words. They're your words. And your speaking You're saying, he that has ears, let him hear. If anyone hears me and opens the door, I will come in. And that is eternal life. To know you, to have you in our life, that is eternal life. So, Heavenly Father, make that a reality. Help each one of us this morning to know you through Jesus. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.